Hey everybody, I'm Phil Town. And I'm Danielle Town. And we're here for the podcast Invested. Invested. Which is where you're going to learn about investing and why you should do it and get invested in it and have an education and learn it according to rule number one, which yeah. is don't lose money. Don't lose money. Yep. And we've got a ton of stuff sort of stacked up to talk about of questions from listeners and stuff that I've been thinking about, such as we had a question from Justin asking about Chipotle and this big drop that they've had um, and, you know, if it's a good time to buy. So it's enough to make you puke. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> that was such a dad joke. <laughs> Um, but I've been wondering the same thing, and uh, and so that's something that we want to talk about. We want to talk about robo-advisors. Um, I know we've got a few other things that people have sent in, but what happened yesterday is that the Dow dropped like crazy. So yep. that's what we're going to talk about, because I'm curious about what does that mean for Rule 1 investing? Like, I, I have no idea. I mean, I know we're supposed to kind of be thinking long-term, and we're supposed to be looking at, like the basis of a company and its value. And so like when something like that happens, does it even matter to us? Do I even like read the news and think, oh, I should maybe do something about that or do I just ignore it? Well, theoretically, you just ignore it. Theoretically. Theoretically. Yeah, theoretically. But um, in, in fa- as a matter of fact, I mean, I think everybody pays attention when the market starts to go through a major gyration. And by a major gyration, what I mean is that um, all the way back in the 1930s, when Ben Graham started developing the theory of investing that we use, um, which we call rule one investing, some people call it value investing, <clears throat> this basic concept is that the market fluctuates mm-hmm. and that it goes from an emotion, an emotional status of exuberance and excitement and kind of overly overheated market environment hmm. to the opposite emotion, which is fear and it's all horrible and everybody's <laughs> unemployed and it's all, never the sun's never going to come up tomorrow. It's like a human. Well, I, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's the human experience. I think Mr. Market numbers. is. numbers. It, it is. It, <laughs> well, of course, it is human experience. Right. Because <laughs> humans are doing it. Humans are doing it. And, and the really astonishing thing is that 85% of the money that's invested in the stock market is actually managed by professionals. So the sort of stunning. Is that a lot or a little? What do you mean it's astonishing? 80, well, what's astonishing is that um, professionals would be emotional. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> and in fact, the predominant theory that we've discussed here in this podcast of, uh, of the markets is modern portfolio theory. And most professionals out there who are managing your money, your indexes, your ETFs, your mutual funds, pension funds, most of them subscribe to some version of modern portfolio theory. And what that says is that the price of things is what they're worth. Okay, And um, from that come a lot of other things, predominantly the idea that smart people are not going to sell you something worth $200 for $100. Nobody's going to put anything on sale. They're smarter than that. Um, You're not going to outthink some guy that went to Wharton or Harvard and has got MBAs and then, then went to Goldman Sachs and is running a mutual fund. You're not smarter than he is, and you're not more informed than he is. Um... And therefore, you're not going to beat the market. Okay, so that's fundamental to current thinking about how the markets work. Um, 
And what goes with that are some really interesting corollaries, one of which is that you must take a lot more risk in order to have a shot at a higher rate of return, that you can't get a higher rate of return without taking a lot of risk. Um, so there's, there's a, a current paradigm, if you will, about the markets that says that the markets are pricing everything right all the time. And so when markets go through a big gyration, that um, really kind of creates a problem for that theory, right? Got it. I mean, like, what the heck? Like, what happened? What has changed yesterday? Well, what has changed? Well, the, I mean, I feel like if you watch CNBC, you're looking at guys like me. I go on CNBC all the time. And we're going to give you our opinion about what has changed, right? So th- I, I just I hesitate to be just another talking head that has an opinion about what has changed. So I'll just tell you what they're saying out there, right? And good the, this because is, I don't want to watch CNBC. So good, me neither. You tell me. I, in fact, I brought, I strongly recommend you not watch CNBC. Oh, if good. You, oh. Unless you want to tie yourself up in emotional knots. We're on the same page. Then. We're on the same page on that one. And but uh, what's happening is that. Um, there's starting to become growing amount of fear that we're about to enter into a recession driven predominantly by China slowing down much faster than anybody thought they were. China's growth so slowing down. Yeah, China's oh. growth slowing down. Um, and it's difficult to know for sure what's going on because the Chinese are a little bit kind of questionable about their data. Right. They, they may be soft-pedaling the data a bit. Um, so nobody knows for sure what, what the real data is coming out of China. But the fact is for sure that, you know, the night before yesterday's market, the Chinese market melted down 7%, which if you put that in, in the U.S. market terms, that would be like a thousand-point drop in the Dow. Wow. It'd be, it would be huge. Major. Huge, Yeah. I don't know that we've had a drop that big, even in 2008, in one day. That's a huge drop. So this is, there's a real roller coaster going on over in China, and that creates a lot of fear. And fear, um, when it starts to dominate the market, causes fund managers to start selling out. People out there reading this news will start to withdraw their money, and the fund manager has to sell stock. Um, so. Why should we pay attention to this? Well, so if I'm if I'm that fund manager, I would say, no, no, no. It's not fear. Don't tell me I'm fearful. I'm doing a logical action in response to new information that I just received from China. Right. And and that's fair enough. And I, I would say probably that's what's going on out there today. So I, I say fear is a overly broad term there. I would say cautionary move for what's mm-hmm. going on in China. Now this is not to say that fear won't come. Absolutely. <laughs> fear. You have a bunch of cautionary, cautionary days. Cautionary days tend to build upon themselves. Exactly. And pretty soon you Until there's a run on the bank. Fear. And there's a run on the bank. Exactly what happens. And, and this is what Ben Graham, uh, all those years ago, 80 years ago, said is the natural process of a real market, a free market, goes from these extremes, from extreme exuberance to extreme fear. It's just part of the way the market works. When you think about, if you want to see an example of that, look at the, go watch The Big Short. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's a really good movie. You should all go watch this because it's an example of how irrational exuberance took over the real estate market. And you're watching 
um, these guys start to have this realization, the heroes of the movie are starting to have a realization that something extraordinary was going on when they were talking to these strippers in, in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, because who they owned because six they owned houses. houses. That's right. I remember that from the book. And the guys are like, how could you possibly own six houses? Said, well, you just have a liar loan. You tell them whatever you want to tell them. And they give you 110% of the appraised value of the house. <laughs> and so here, here you have this market that's supposed to be rational. And homes are going for 180,000, and then 200,000, and then 100, then 250, and that's just in one year. And then 250 to 280, and then 280. And so these girls were buying these homes and flipping them, and it was successful. Right. It was a successful strategy for a while. And so what dawned on these guys is that if people who don't know anything about the value of anything that they're buying, they're just doing it because somebody's going to come along and pay more later. That that inevitably has a an end point. You can't have a hockey stick curve that goes straight up in, for infinity. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, someone goes, wow, um, those houses are too expensive. And so in the case of the big short, um, these guys decided they were going to bet millions and millions of dollars in a short, in other words, betting that real estate prices would go down, real estate uh, house prices would drop, yeah. particularly subprime prices prices. And when that happened, these mortgage mortgages would go into foreclosure and these bonds based on those mortgages would collapse first time in history. And they made this amazing bet and they made billions of dollars because they bet right. So um, markets, I mean, the idea that markets are, are rational and without any emotion is crazy. They move, they, you can just see it in the real estate market. It moves from from being this staid old, you know, nobody makes much money in real estate to you can make a fortune in real estate overnight. Hmm. And when that starts to happen, it's just like if people were thinking you can make a fortune in the stock market overnight, you're probably at the upper end of the spec of the fluctuation, right? You're in more toward the greed side of things and a long way from the fear side of things. So eventually the market crumbles. Okay. Now, what does that look like? Well, look at the newspaper, front page from yesterday about the stock market melting down, and that's what it starts to look like. It starts to look like things sense? start to go badly. So anytime the stock market dips, that's like a sign that we're... Ooh, well, very, mean, no, no very good point. It, you, you have to have a starting point. So we have to have a rational starting point for this. So let me give you a couple facts about the stock market right now. Okay. Um, Warren Buffett said that probably the best... Um, the best way to judge whether the stock market is overpriced or underpriced is probably by looking at the Wilshire 5000 market cap. It's it's an index of 5,000 stocks, the the 5,000 biggest stocks in the market. Okay, so pretty much everything that sells for a couple bucks or more is in the Wilshire 5000. So you take all of those companies, the value of all those companies in the market that day and add it all up. That's the Wilshire 5000. So let's say uh, on any given day, it's at, let's say it's at $20 trillion okay. right now. Then what Buffett would do is he said that over history, if the Wilshire 5000 is well below gross domestic product, in other words, let's say the Wilshire 5000 is at 15000 
and GDP is at 20, sorry, 15 trillion, and GDP is at 20 trillion. Buffett would say, if it's 70% of GDP, that market is probably a bargain. So that would mean if GDP is 20 trillion, and I'm ballparking it, we're in the ballpark there. Okay. 20 trillion, then a market at 14 trillion would be a, a really good market to be buying into. If you're going to look at the whole market, all right? So for some reason, GDP relative to the value of the stock market, Wilshire 5000 value, if it's 70%, that's a buyer's market. By the time it gets to 100%, it's, it's a fully priced market. You're not going to find bargains. Okay. Okay. Well, today it's 126%. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah, really. Wow. Yeah. It's about as high as it's ever been in history. And each time it's compared been there before. Compared to GDP. Compared to GDP. Each time it's been there before, a market crashed within a year or two. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it's a pretty good marker. So that's one big red flag. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to say about whether or not that's a good me method of measurement, because I just have no idea. But if it's true that every time it's been above GDP, yep. the, the market has crashed. Yep. Well, yep. okay, okay. So a doubter would say, well, just because it crashed within a year or two of that happening doesn't mean that they're correlated. Like, Correlation does not imply causation, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what you said there, but I'm I'm willing to agree. I would stipulate that. <laughs> <laughs> so two things can happen at the same time without one thing causing the other. Thing. Ah, fair enough, fair enough. In other words, I can beat on a drum and the sun comes up. True. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm making the sun come up that with my correct. drum. That okay, is correct. Gotcha. And yet you might be. <laughs> <laughs> yet I might be. Wow. Okay, so you can really get in some hairball stuff there with that. Yeah. So, so I don't this, know. I, I have nothing to say about whether or not Buffett is right about that. Right, but, and I don't um, know either for that's sure. That's interesting. I mean, I've looked at the data, and the data's there. Okay. In history, that's he's been right, um, and I'm not even. I mean, you can look this up. Carol Loomis wrote about this in 2002 or 2003. You can Google it. And who is that? Carol Loomis is a biographer for Buffett. Oh. And um, and. You know, he doesn't talk about market value very often because he doesn't really care about market value. And neither should we, except that, you know, if the markets are really super cheap, we're going to have a lot more opportunity to buy cool things at a super great price than if the markets are really expensive. So if you're looking around and you can't find anything good to buy and you haven't been doing it for 50 years like Buffett, it might be good to know that the markets are really expensive right now. Yeah. That, that would be a good thing to know because it's really hard to find stuff on sale right now. Well, not to mention that obviously none of us have much spare time and spending a bunch of time trying to value companies to buy. When you're endlessly doing overpriced doing companies. doing it over and over, right. Like, I don't yeah. want to be spending my time doing that. Yeah. A friend of mine gave me her list of 100 companies that some big investment bank had put her into with a few million dollars, and they just bought 100 companies okay. with her money. And I ran a, a valuation on all 100 of them. It took me like two hours, which is <laughs> used to take, you know, weeks per company. Now you can do it really fast. And 96% of them were either at their full price or over the full price. Hmm. And she, they just bought at, them. At the price that they had bought them. Yeah, they just bought them like that month. Hmm. So, you know, when you see that, you start to realize that 
you know, these guys aren't out there bargain shopping. If they believe in modern portfolio theory and that all prices are values, they're not going to bargain shop because in their theory, there are no bargains. So they're just going to go out and buy the 100 best companies and whatever they pay for them is, quote, the value. When we think that's utter nonsense, okay? And there's another good book out there that we've talked about in the past called Irrational Exuberance, written about precisely this thing in 1999 by Robert Schiller, who's an economist at Yale. And it really, really starts to drive a, a stake into the heart of modern portfolio theory from the point of view of an economist who's respected, who's basically saying it's absolute nonsense. Hmm. Another couple books that have been written about this uh, are by Nicholas Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, and my favorite, which is Anti-Fragile, um, are all from a guy who is just like modern portfolio theory is nuts. I mean, even the data they've got is wrong. And all of this is a stunningly astonishing when you consider that the Nobel Committee awarded three Nobel Prizes to the guys that developed modern portfolio theory. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. So um, what should we think about the market today? All right, first thing is the Wilshire's real expensive compared to GDP. Second thing is that Robert Schiller at Yale built this uh, charting system called the Schiller PE, which he talks about in his book, and which shows, purports to show when the market's overvalued and when it's undervalued um, mm. based on data for the last 140 years. Okay. And when the market gets to a Schiller PE of 23 or 24 or above, it's in that range where it crashes, typically, following that. Is that information that's out there? Yeah, you can Google Schiller PE. Okay. And a chart will come up. And last time I checked it, I haven't checked it for a couple of weeks, but last time I checked it, we were running about a 26 PE. And what is it? 24 is the is red flag. The red flag. Yeah. So, again, another, another, from another point of view, uh, another big red flag. Interesting. And then the third huge red flag just comes from data, which is that... U.S. companies, at least, have the largest profit margins that they've had maybe ever. That is that they're more profitable for every dollar of revenue than they've been in a long, long time. And the problem with that is it's unsustainable. It's, it's that the market forces will drive those profit margins together back. In, the, in other words, there's this concept of re, re, reversion to the mean. Yeah. So what you're saying which, is like the current stock prices reflect this unprecedented revenue. Yes. And therefore, at some point, it will correct down. It will correct down. So as we're seeing this very high PE from Schiller PE, then we're going to see it get squeezed mm -hmm. as profit margins shrink. Um, and then the fourth. So here we have Schiller. We've got the Wilshire. We've got profit margins at record levels and likely to revert to the mean. And then we've got China having starting to slow down dramatically as it tries to shift from an infrastructure-driven economy where they're building out uh, airports and roads and 60 million apartments to one that's driven by the middle class, a consumer-driven economy. And that is going to be a bumpy ride. Nobody doubts it. Um, and as they go through that bumpy ride, it's going to affect a lot of companies around the world that are producing commodities, that are producing mm. trucks. Yeah, we were talking about that last time. Yeah. So all these companies are getting hammered, like John Deere and Caterpillar and uh, Cameco does uranium and, and, and 
Freeport McMoran does copper and, and iron ore and, and oil. And I mean, you just have a meltdown of worldwide hmm. commodities. And that by itself, you would think, well, that's just nothing but good because everything's cheaper. But the problem is those miners and oil companies are the largest consumers of equipment and and raw materials in the world. I mean, they they use the steel, they build, they use up the trucks, they and they're just not buying any of that stuff now. And so that's starting to, to work into the economy. So there's a lot of things out there that are pressing things shift. down. Yeah, yeah, a big shift. All right, and here's one of the killers as far as I'm concerned, is that we run into recessions about once every eight years. It's a typical length of time to get back into a recession. And although it feels like we haven't actually broken out of the last one yet, <laughs> the last one actually was in 2008. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So if this big pile of bad news doesn't have you perking up, then I, I would think then you, you should you either are you might be in the buy and hold group, which is like whatever you do, just ignore what's going on in the world, buy and hold, dollar cost average in every month. No, no, no. I think it's really interesting to hear this stuff because I get I I read this news about the Dow crashing and I'm like Am I supposed to care about that? I honestly, like, I don't care. But if I'm supposed to care, I can try. And I don't know if I'm supposed to care. So that's what, you know, that's why I wanted to talk about it today. Because is this something I should be paying attention to? So it sounds like maybe I have an option to pay attention. Sure, you have an option to pay attention to it. And and like I said, the, the best guys in the world, Buffett and Munger, they don't really care what the market's doing because they're so good at finding deals, right? Yeah. But for you and I, it's a lot easier to find good deals when the market fluctuates into a state of fear. I mean, it seems really hard to find good deals. It's really hard right now. But believe me, back in 2009, you could hardly, you could throw a dart. And, and this, is, this is actually something we have not talked about really on the podcast. You talk about it in your books, but... We haven't talked about how to value a company and how to determine if it's a good deal. We've talked generally, but we haven't talked about specifics of valuation. Well, the, the cool thing about valuation is it's pretty straightforward on companies that you are capable of understanding. Remember mm. old Charlie's yeah. stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, the first element is always being capable of understanding the company. And if we just narrow down our world of companies that we're going to try to figure out the value of to those we are capable of understanding, then our problems will be mostly resolved. <laughs> people people get into trouble investing when they don't know what they don't know. Oh gosh! And that steps Story them into the yeah. That steps them into deep. You don't know it's quicksand, so you walk right out on it, right? right. So it's the stuff that you don't know you don't know. Well, and that's why we're talking about exactly to try to get a sense for what on earth I don't know and what on earth everybody else doesn't know. Yep. So the, the beauty is that there's very, very prescribed uh, fundamentals about a really good company that you should consider buying. And if you stick to those, really in, stay inside that box, even if you pay too much for it, you're, you're probably going to be just fine. It's a good company. It's okay. not going to go under because it's got too much debt. Or because right. it, it doesn't know how to protect its moat, right? Right. So, so the valuation is really sort of the fourth thing we get to, right? We we we're capable of understanding. We want to know it's got a moat. We want to know the management's reasonably good, and then 
we'd like to buy it at a margin of safety. But there's a lot of latitude on what a margin of safety is. We can have some pretty big differences of opinion. If you get the first three right, you're going to be buying a really good company. Hmm. And really good companies tend to, to pay you off in the long run. Yeah, I take your point on that. That said, I do find this interesting that I could have some indicators as to what's happening in the market overall and therefore be informed as to when overall there might be better deals. Because then I can, this is how I think, like then I can allot my time accordingly because I don't have a lot of time to do this. So if right now the market is totally overheated and I think we're in a bubble, I'm not going to spend a ton of my spare time um, evaluating the prices of companies that I'm interested in. Precisely. Because they're probably going to be overpriced. Precisely. Maybe, and, maybe and you can find one. I don't know. You well, tell and, me. And is that, is I that think that's 100% like a good right. allocation of time? No, it would be a bad allocation of time. You should go play golf. <laughs> you, 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 really, you, you really hit the nail on the head by, by picking up on this time thing because – what Charlie said that I thought was just genius was that you don't make money when you buy stocks and you don't make money when you sell them. You make money when you wait. Okay. It's the waiting <laughs> is the key. In other words... I feel I, like the first thing and the last thing are also very important. But, but they, they, become, they become, honestly, they become relatively trivial. I mean, it sounds crazy, but they become relatively trivial. One of the things that, that Warren says over and over again is we don't like to jump over six-foot bars. We try to jump over six-inch bars. And if we keep that in mind, I mean, think about that as an image, as you're, 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 you're walking along and here's a six-inch bar. Yeah. You can get over that. You just step over it, okay? That's what Warren's talking about. It's a no-brainer to step over it. You don't have to be a genius and figure out how to leap over this six-foot-high thing. So if it looks like it's six feet high to you, it is six feet high. Don't try to jump it. You should only step over the ones that are obviously companies you're stepping over. Does that make sense? In other words, you wait. Think about it in terms of the overall market fluctuations. If the market's real expensive, everything's a six-foot high bar. You've got to be a genius to pick out a company that's going to take off because it's already overpriced. But if the market just fell through the floor like it did in 2009, and the Dow's at 6,700, there's a hundred six-inch bars standing around out there. You just have to pick the few that you might know something about, you're capable of understanding, and step over them. I mean, at that point in time, a couple of companies we talked about a lot, like Chipotle, Mexican Grill, Whole Foods, those were six-inch bars. They were making money hand over fist, and they were just absolutely cheap. You, you really couldn't have missed if you just picked 10 of them hmm. at, at that point in time. And here we are six or seven years later, and now might be time to think about selling them. Selling them? Ah, yeah. I thought you are supposed to buy and hold. No, that's a fallacy. We want to buy when there's fear. We want to sell when there's greed. Okay, so you might, go, you might choose a company and then move in and out of a position on that company. Over years. Over years. Yes, if not, that company not... gets over, over, overpriced, right? Okay. So, for example... We bought it in Chipotle when it was in the 50s, and it got to $750 a share. It was just stupidly overpriced. We'll have to talk about that another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was no reason to own it at that price. The greed factor was insane. Chipotle would have to grow to become the size of McDonald's 
in order to be worth what but they the were paying is, for. But the thing is, that was probably true at five hundred dollars. It was probably, and yet it's like who knows how far the speculation is going to go. Oh, but we don't care about that. We're not. We're not speculating. If you're selling, you are. If you're well, selling because you think it's topping out, you are. Well, there's some tricks you can do to get out with a little extra boost, but there's no reason to stick around. If you bought this thing at fifty dollars a share and it's now at five hundred, you've done okay in five years. Okay, fine. You've done okay. <laughs> it's a thousand percent return. <laughs> you can you can let somebody else have the last two hundred and fifty. Fifty dollars no, of greed. We don't want to. <laughs> Do we, we don't want to get bitten by the greed bug. So we want to always keep in mind what the value of the business is, and when it gets ridiculously over the top of the the real intrinsic value of the business, then just get out of it and and know that yeah, it might keep running, but eventually it's going to come back to earth. Okay. And you don't want to be there when that happens. And what I think is really valuable right now, for in terms of our listeners in this podcast, is that great investors don't just sit there and take it. Okay. The only reason you sit there and take it is because you're too big to get out. And that's certainly not the case for everybody who's listening to this podcast. You're little and you can get out. Buffett once was asked sitting there not sitting there and taking it means getting out out. when When it's uh, way overpriced. overpriced. Absolutely. So here's an example from Buffett's portfolio. Coca-Cola got to be ridiculously priced in the late 1990s, and pretty much everybody knew it. And here's Buffett with like a 10% ownership of Coca-Cola. And later on, the stock crashed 50%. Mm -hmm. And he was asked in one of his meetings why he didn't sell it. He said, well, because I'm not nimble. Oh, not he, because you shouldn't had, sell it. Because he had so much money in it. Exactly. He would crash the he stock crash all by it, himself, yeah. right? So he didn't respond the way a lot of people thought he would if you never sell, right? He didn't say, oh, we would never sell. He said, we didn't get out, even literally, even though we knew it was overvalued, because we couldn't. Hmm. But you and I can. We can get out. And so there's some great tools we'll talk about as we go down the road that help people, particularly who are in mutual funds and indexes and ETFs, that they can look at these tools and see when the big guys are exiting. And when the big guys exit on the way we use these tools, it's been very, very successful set of tools for predicting the market's going to take a, a big drop. Hmm. And so that's uh, something we'll talk about down the road. Yeah, we need to talk about also like how to take interests and turn them into investing information. We need to talk how to how to take events and turn that into investing information. Like I'm trying to shift my my sort of world view in terms of reading the news and stuff into like okay, how do I turn this into well, first of all something that's interesting to me and secondly into something that informs my investing purview overall. Okay, well let's start with a couple of basics here. That are, that are fundamental. First off, you can't do this kind of investing that I do and that I want you to learn to do unless you're okay with sitting in cash for like five years. Well, obviously, I'm fine with that. I'm the girl who <laughs> wanted to save everything forever and <laughs> never do <laughs> that. Is that what sitting in cash means, by yep. the way? Sitting in cash is, is money under the bed or sitting okay. in a money market account or in short-term bonds or something, right, where you can get, it, get your hands on it. Um, and you have to be willing to do that for a long, long time while you're waiting for these fluctuations to come along. So this is at the very basics, right? This is where just your average person can jump over six-inch bars because the market is going to give you those six-inch jumps once every five or six or seven years, for sure, sometimes more often. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, when 
it happens, you've learned enough about a few companies that you can yeah. load up the truck. Yeah, yeah, like be prepared. Be prepared. Third, when the market goes to the other extreme, which is where it's been lately, mm-hmm. be prepared to exit and go back to cash. Hmm. And then if in, and then you, you have to be ready to sit there for three years while it continues to go up it because you don't, don't have a crystal greedy. ball. Don't be greedy. That's a hard one for me. I know. Don't be greedy. But this is where these big rates of return come from. And obviously, this is why fund That's managers can't money. do this. They, they can't sit in cash for three years. So yeah, these are the things we difference. can do, they can't do. Uh-huh. And it starts to make you think, well, that means there's going to be big chunks of time where I'm really not doing anything. I'm talking about years where you're not doing oh, I anything. I love that. That sounds fantastic. And then just you take action and boom, and then you're done again for years some more. <laughs> It's very meditative. It is. It's very, very... I like it. Take, take five minutes of concentrated Established activity. Established in being, perform, perform action. action. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. I do too. I think it's Yoga Star Kuru Karmani. Yoga Star Kuru Karmani. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, on that note... Well, let me just add ah. that... Um, I, I, so, I everybody, I tried to show Dad Instagram the other day, and it, it went it went semi-okay. Yeah, I would yeah. give it a semi-okay. Yeah, semi-pretty cool. You looked at it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure you know what it is. Still. No, not really. But anyway, I have an Instagram. It's invested with Danielle. And I did, as I was showing you, I did a whole series on Portugal because I was just in Portugal. And I thought to myself, hello, I'm in Portugal. How do I turn this into some kind of investing sort of research moment? And, um, and so I did. And I actually really enjoyed it. Um, so check out my Instagram. Because and you brought gonna... me back a wonderful bottle of port. I did. It was awesome. It was really good. Yeah, so that's what port tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the point is, I'm going to be doing stuff like that and putting it up on Instagram. Uh, and then we can talk about it on the podcast. So Definitely. So that's coming. We're going to talk about Portugal and about sort of generally investing in other countries and, and what's good. You know, what's really fun is when you get into this, I think you can probably write off some of these trips as investing research. <laughs> check with <laughs> we'll your just, tax counsel. We'll just put that out into the ether. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> check with your tax counsel. All right. I think it's time to go. All right. All right. Let's go play. All right. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.